Well, good morning. I mean, I at least I think I think it's morning. It is morning, right? Well, it has been a week. We've decided that, you know, a lot of times with youth ministry trips, you, you want to bring a doctor with you, right? Because someone is inevitably going to get hurt. So having an EMT or a doctor on site at all times is usually helpful. But I think from now on, I'm bringing a mechanic. So if you are a mechanic, we are in, we are in need of a mechanic um, because apparently it does not matter what we do with the bus, even if they are brand new tires, we will lose one. Because we are right now batting a thousand, we are three for three, and so uh, it is good to be here with you this morning again. And I am trusting that God is going to empower my way through this uh, to add to the the drama of the and the the continuing saga of the flat tires. As I was playing one of the songs, I felt the air pocket in my shoe go out. I kid you not. <clears throat> So my right shoe right now is extremely squishy every time I step on it. So that's my world right now. If I, if I somehow pass out up here, the notes are here. Just come up and read it, okay? You're good to go. Go grab Michaela. She'll figure it out. But someone be on standby. I know there's an EMT in the room, so just beware. It could happen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we turn our attention now to the Word of God. Father God, we do thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. We thank you for your great love for us. That God, you continue to pursue us. Though we run from you time without number, though we fail you over and over and over again, you still love us. And God, your great voice still resounds through the universe calling to us that all who would might come and find salvation in the work in person of Jesus Christ by grace through faith. Lord, you know our weaknesses. You know my weaknesses. You know the truth of your word better than we ever will. And God, as we come to this passage that is much maligned and often misunderstood, I pray that you would help me to speak clearly and that our hearts and minds would be open to see what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. We the people. This is an incredibly popular statement or idea in American culture right now, talking about what we the people want. And a lot of times we misuse it because what we the people means we are a group of people. Like, we, the people of the United States, are like we, several groups of people right now, if we're being honest. But the original intent was that we would find these, these, these middle ground ideas and ideals that we would pursue together as the American populace to create this new union, this, this new nation, and, and that would lead us forward to a better union. Again, this we the people, well, we find that statement at the beginning of the preamble of the Constitution of these United States of America, and that preamble, preamble starts like this. It says, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessing of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States 
of America. When a person is considered a citizen of the United States, they enjoy the protections and liberties outlined in the Constitution. Now, we may disagree about what those freedoms and how the application of those freedoms looks, but the fact of the matter is, even with our disagreements, there are a great many freedoms that we have that are defended by the Constitution, that are laid out for us to know that these are our rights, or as they like to say in Alabama, I know my rights, right? Our rights. And even though foreign persons can legally become citizens through a long process, we also practice here in the United States what's called birthright citizenship. In other words, if you are born to American citizens anywhere in the world, anywhere in the world, or if you're, or if you're born on U.S. soil, you are a U.S. citizen all the same. Born to America by blood is a blood right thing that is passed from one generation of American to the next, to the next, to the next in perpetuity. And sometimes we bring our understanding of this citizenship, as great as it is, we bring our understanding of American citizenship and we superimpose it over ideas of citizenship in the kingdom of God that we find in the Bible. But the kingdom of God has a wholly different grounds for citizenship that comes not through birthright, but through grace by faith. We've seen that over and over and over and over again in these first eight chapters of Romans. And now as we come to chapter 9, Paul's going to do an even deeper dive into how this citizenship works. And he's going to give us some insight into why we can never attain or experience our salvation or our citizenship, if you will, based on anything other than faith in the work and person of Jesus Christ and the declaration of God Almighty. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, and Paul says this. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. The people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, though. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children of physical descent who are God's children, but is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abram's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told, 
the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I hated. What shall then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me then, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. Just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue the righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. I will be honest with you. I do not like this chapter in the Bible. I find most of the time I stand up here and I say, this is one of my favorite texts in the Bible, and I like those ones. But I, I, as I was working on the sermon before I left for a mission serve last week, I was thinking about the fact that Nathan got to do chapter 8 last week, where he got to talk about the fact that we were more than conquerors, and that, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then you go on to chapter 9, and it's like, some of you were, just, were created to be destroyed, and some of you were created for the love of God. And I'm like, why did I not work this out? So Nathan had to do chapter 9. I mean, that would have been great because not only would I not have had to preach it, I wouldn't have had to been here. And I looked at this passage over and over and over again, and I'm working with another, another pastor, and we're working on these sermons together, and both of us were looking at this going, what in the world have we gotten ourselves into? But you know what? I think that we misunderstand and misrepresent this passage a lot of times. As is often the way in American culture, particularly in the church, we like to pick and choose different verses at times. There's a reason why I am reading every chapter of Romans in their entirety every Sunday. 
Because it's easy for us, just like we saw a few weeks ago, to pull Paul's words out of context and think that Paul is actually talking about marriage and divorce when he's actually talking about the grace of God. He's just using marriage and divorce as as a, a means to illustrate the greater point. And I think we do that here. Because here in this text, I want us to note right quickly before I jump into this, that Paul talks at the very beginning of the text with a lament about the people of Israel not coming to Christ and how he would even go to hell himself if the people of Israel would come to Christ, right? He is determined to get the grace of God into the the hearts and minds of everyone he can, and he wants to do whatever he can for people to believe. Then he comes to this middle section where there's this 11 to 12 verses where Paul talks about this really weird stuff about God choosing and us really not having a choice in the midst. And the fact that God, if we read it literally as people often do without context, that God as a potter and that he creates some vessels with the specific purpose of breaking them, so to speak, and others to look pretty and put on the shelf. Then Paul goes back again to the expansive grace of God that God, while all Israelites might not be saved, God in his grace brings in tons of Gentiles and the pervasiveness of the grace of God again. So how is it that Paul starts with God's grace is so amazing for my people, then he ends with God's grace is so amazing for all people, but then we get to the middle and Paul's like, God hates some people. Does that not seem logically inconsistent To some of you at least. It did to me. So today we're going to go through this text and in the middle we're actually going to have a pretty thick, it's going to be culturally relevant, but we're going to have a a lesson on linguistics from a PhD student at Harvard University. And he's one of my former students, so I'm super proud. All right? So let's jump into this. First thing that we see as we come into Romans chapter 9, and this is an important point that goes throughout the entirety of this passage, and I would argue goes throughout the entirety of the book of Romans, and that is this. God's people are determined by God's promise. God's people are determined by God's promise. Now as we start this text and we get into Romans chapter 9, we see a truth that is contained in the broader whole of Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, and that's this, that God's promises were indisputably offered to a very limited and particularly particular group of people, right? There was a very narrow swath, a very narrow avenue through which someone could enter into the kingdom of God, and it was actually nationally aligned. The truth is this, brothers and sisters, that God's promises were, that that God at one point in time did in fact have his own nation. That God at one time did in fact have his own nation on the planet, and it was not ours. It has never been the United States of America. Understand that that part of our draw to this is an ethos that came through Christians that came over here who thought that America was going to be the new Jerusalem. I mean, everybody from the Mormons down through a bunch of different traditions believed that they were marching into a new place and they were going to create the proprietary kingdom of God. It's part of how we got all of these denominations because we believed that we had the key. And even when we talk about America and and the national ideals and whether or not we're a Christian nation, you go into five different churches and all five of them are going to have different ideas of what that means. Because it is is skewed based upon our our understanding of the Bible and our theology, our interpretation. But God God doesn't have a particular nation on this earth. He did, 
And it was the nation of Israel. And as was true with the law that we saw a couple years ago, a couple weeks ago, excuse me, a couple weeks, it feels like a couple years, a couple weeks ago, that God's law was incapable of making a people right, right? That people tried and all the law did is show how bad we were at being the people of God. Well, if the law didn't work, the national identity, one would assume that that if the law didn't work, that didn't work either. And the truth is, go read the Old Testament. It didn't work. As a matter of fact, both with the law and with the national identity, and it's a mistake that we often make, they made it more about themselves than about serving God. It was about protecting their own progeny and their own projects and the things that they were correcting, their own priorities. And they used God as a weapon to beat others down and beat others away and to even abuse and oppress other peoples. It's something that, that people of God have had to be careful, not just in the Christian religion, but in religions in general. We, if we are not careful, the word of God and the truth of God becomes a select and elite thing that we use as a weapon, not to defend against the attacks of a Satan, but, but to to oppress and defend against other people. And the people of Israel had certainly done that. And Paul begins this chapter, here in chapter 9, with what I would call Paul's great lament. And and this is the reason that Paul worked so unrelentingly in his efforts to preach the gospel and to point people to Jesus. we got to look at this again, because this is just absolute insanity. Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. Hand of the Bible, hand to God, he says. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul says, I wish I could fix it. I wish I could fix it. Now think about how insane this is. Let me ask you this question. Would you be willing to give up a good that you have received in order to bring about good in the, in, in the lives of those who had done evil to you? Would you give up something you had, you had accepted, you had been given, that you cherished above all other things to someone else that was your enemy that had harmed you to do good to them? That's what Paul is doing here. And it's not just a good, it is the greatest good. Remember, the people of Israel had rejected Paul. At every turn, they are chasing him down. They are stirring up local governments against him. They are constantly getting the tar beat out of him. They tried to stone him to death. Ultimately, they get him sent to Rome, where he is beheaded according to Christian tradition. And Paul looks at these people, his enemies, those who are constantly trying to undo him, those that are constantly trying to literally not figuratively, emotionally, mentally, literally they are trying to destroy his body and end his life. And Paul looks at these people and he says, I wish that I could go to hell to let them go to heaven. Are you kidding me? This passage, why do I bring this up? Because this passage starts with an amazing remark and an amazing example of grace. This is how much Paul values the grace of God and how far he's willing to go to demonstrate the grace of God in his own life. That he would give up his own salvation if he could cause his enemies to accept Christ? Oh, that we would have that kind of a heart for the lost. Forget just our enemies. If we would just have that heart 
for even our friends and family. Yeah, also our enemies, but that God would give us that kind of an understanding of grace, that we would pray so diligently, that we would work so hard, and that our hearts would be broken at the status and the lostness of the world. Not just that we would cease to mitigate it so it wouldn't inconvenience us or cause problems in our family, but that we would see them go to heaven. And the truth is, the only way we're going to mitigate the messes in the world is if God changes the heart. We already talked about that. Paul says, I would give it all up. If they would come to Christ. Israel had every chance. Verses 4 through 5 show us that Israel was, was the keeper of the faith, if you will. They were the ones that held the avenues, or what the Methodists like to call the means of grace. The ways that could, people could experience and see God's presence in a, a tactile, you know, touchable, tasteable, smellable, seeable way in the world. Paul says they had adoption to sonship. In Roman terms, adoption to sonship went beyond a place in a family. Adoption to sonship was access to all of the family resources. It was ability to speak for the family. The authority to use the family name. They were heirs of the kingdom. Not just citizens in the kingdom. Owners of the kingdom. Access to God's grace and right relationship with him was theirs by birthright. But also by God's grace. But something we need to understand in this, that not to look over, is that all of God's children throughout all of history have been adopted by faith through grace. That ultimate standing has always, like they may have been born into the nation of Israel, but Paul, Paul goes to great lengths here as we follow. That, that they could be born into the kingdom, so to speak, and have easier access to God, but there still was a next step that needed to be taken in order for them to become full citizens, and that was faith in God through grace. Faith has always been couched in relationship between God and humanity. And Paul laments that his fellow Israelites had failed to accept God's grace in Jesus. They had waited their entire history for the coming of the Messiah. They had waited their entire lives for, for, for hundreds of years for the coming of this one that would make things right. This literal, physical manifestation of God's presence in the world. Emmanuel, God with us, that would, that would take that, that connection from God from being something that was in in examples and illustrations through the temple and the word of God and the sacrifices and that God would then send them a physical manifestation of his presence in the world, his very self walking around them and they had it in their face and they ignored it. They missed it. You know, I, I think about this often because we like to say, well, if I saw Jesus, I, I would recognize Jesus. You know what? If I'm, if I'm being really honest with you, I don't know that I would be that far from the Jews of Jesus' day. i just being really honest. I think Jesus, if he were in my church, he would infuriate me because he would mess up my plans. I know that he would infuriate a lot of you because he wouldn't care about the, a lot of the things that are so important to us and he would be pushing us to do things that would go well beyond what we thought were acceptable. It's why we sang that song this morning, the overwhelming, reckless love of God. Again, I've talked about this. God's glove is not reckless, but from our standpoint, it seems irresponsible. 
It's just not as clean and as clear and, and as, as contained as we think it should be. Which is funny because when we're well outside of God's, God's law and God's plan, we want God's grace to reach outside those lines, don't we? At that time, we want God's grace to be big. When we screwed up, we want God's grace to us to be amazing. But when we look at others, we don't want to extend that same grace to them. And the people of Israel was the same way. So God sent Jesus, and Jesus was like, I don't care about your systems and your structures. I'm God incarnate. I'm going to do what I want. We need to understand that God did not reject his people Israel. They rejected him. First, in John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, it tells us this. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. And he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The apostle John writes, everybody missed it. They rejected, his own rejected him. They did not receive him. Verse 6, chapter 9 of Romans, it says, It is not as though God's word had failed. God didn't fail them. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. The failure belonged and continues to belong not to God and his word, but to the rebellion of the human heart. To our failure to see and believe. To believe that Christ came and Judaism was left behind as a mistake. This is what we believe according to this text in the New Testament. We believe that Christ came and he just obliterated the Jews and left them behind. He's like, you know what, I'm dusting the feet, the dust off my feet and I'm leaving you all behind. That is, that is not the case. Understand this, that Christianity is the completion of Judaism. It's just the next iteration of what God was doing. This was always in the cards. And the plan was never to leave them behind but to bring them along. See, God didn't close Israel out. God opened Israel up. And membership in the family of God is not and has never been exclusively determined by flesh, but by the promise of God and faith. Look at verse 8. In verse 8, it says, In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abram's offspring. And even if we go back, it says that it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. There, there, was, a, there was an extra element that happened after birth. It wasn't just being born according to this, this bloodline, but it was God's declaration that this person is my child. God's declaration always played a part in salvation. It continues to play a part in salvation. That is how we are made just, right? The just shall live by faith. And, and Abram was, was made righteous, declared righteous by God. We, we receive that. Nothing has changed. God hasn't changed his order of operations. He just opened it up. Now here's a truth that we need to remember. Abraham had multiple sons. Not just two. He had the two, the two, the big two we think about, right? Ishmael and, and, and Isaac. But Abram had, had a concubine and she had a bunch of kids too. Abram paid them off and sent them packing at the end of his life. Why? Because Isaac was the child of promise. This reveals part of the failure of Israel in any, many ways Christianity when we make God's promise about us, our worth, 
our rights and our efforts, we've missed the point. It's not about human connection and accomplishments, but about faith in God's promise and God's activity in and through our lives. And our job is to both receive that grace and to share that grace. One of the statements that I make often is God's grace that flows to us should flow through us, not stop with us. God's people aren't called to protect God from the sinful world, keeping them out and us safely in. God's people are called to receive his promise and share it with all who might receive it, that all might have an opportunity to receive it. God didn't close Israel out. He opened Israel up, and the fact is that they hated him for it. No, they didn't understand something that we often fail to understand as well. And that's this, that God's grace is given at God's discretion. God didn't ask your opinion. God doesn't care what you think about the distribution of his grace. God doesn't care who you think deserves it and who doesn't. God just wants you to obey and be glad that you got to receive it in the first place. Because you didn't deserve it either. You're a dirty sinner, just like everyone else. No one's exempt. God's grace is given at God's discretion. God's promise has always been 100% an act of God's grace. God's promise has always been 100% an act of God's grace. Verse 8, it talks about how God called Abraham. Remember, we we know he started as Abram, the exalted father who couldn't produce children. If I was going to call a father of nations, it wouldn't be a guy who wasn't able to sire children. This, you, that by definition disqualifies you from the task. Abram couldn't do it. And God says, hey, Abram, I know you can't have kids and your name is kind of mocks you every time someone says it. But I'm going to call you and your wife and you are going to be the father and mother of a nation. My nation. And your descendants will be like the sands of the sea and the stars in the sky. No one will be able to to count them. And all nations on the earth will be blessed through you. That's crazy. If we were to ask for resumes, there's not one of us in this room would have chosen Abram to be the father of the nation. Not one of us. We'd have done medical checks. We'd have checked it to see if he was able to bear children. We'd see if there are things going on medically with him. And then we would, like, we would fail him and look for somebody else. Not qualified, not good enough. But God called Abraham to be the father of nations. Then we go on to verse 9. We see that that, that promise is passed on to Isaac. That Isaac was the physical manifestation of the grace of God to Abraham. That, that, that Isaac himself was the removal of Abram's failure and, and, and the great success of Abraham's life. But Abraham couldn't do it on his own. God did that. Remember, he, he tried on his own. He had Ishmael. That screwed everything up. We're still dealing with that failure today. But by God's grace, through his promise in the lives of both Sarah and Abraham, Isaac is born. He was a piece of the promise delivered. And by God's choice and God's decree, Isaac and not his older half-brother or any of the other half-brothers would be the conduit through which God's grace or promise would come. They were physical descendants of Abraham, but they were not the children of promise. Only Isaac. 
We see it again in verses 10 through 12. We have Jacob and Esau, right? With Jacob and Esau, it's even clearer because it's not like Isaac and Ishmael where Ishmael comes from a different mother and Isaac comes from another and Isaac comes from Abram's original wife and and Ishmael comes from uh, the the servant girl. No, 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 no. With, With Jacob and Esau, they both come from the same womb at the same time. All things are equal. And before they're born, God says, I choose the younger one. Whichever one comes out first, sorry for you, I want the second one. This is another example of God not caring what we think. And our policies and procedures not dictating to God what God's going to do. And the truth is, throughout Scripture, is this not what God does? Like, God had a really bad habit of, of undoing and ignoring cultural conventions. He constantly was choosing the younger, the weaker Right? David is still out in the field. David doesn't even get invited to the dinner. And, and God says, hey, look, there's got to be another one. Go get the other one, the one that you didn't even invite. I know that you gave me all these other ones, but I, I want the punk redneck kid. Bring him in. He's the king. What? This is how God works. And God chooses Jacob, the younger, over Esau, the older, to be the child of promise. God's grace, by definition, is unearned and unmerited favor. It means you do nothing and you have nothing that makes you deserve it. That God chose to give it all the same. God's promises place expectations upon us. But the outcome and the deliverance of those promises are all the work of God in and through us. God does all of the heavy lifting. And we've got to talk a little bit here about love, hate, and the sovereignty of God. Especially with this quote of, of this passage from, I believe it's Hosea, that, that I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and, and I, will, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That just, that hit, does that hit you a little different? Like, that just seems wrong. I thought God was love. If God was love, how does God hate anyone i mean john 1 for first john 4 16 it says that god is love and that we will be known as followers and, and that love will be experienced through us that, that jesus himself said they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another love is a pretty central it's offensively central to god's ideology and his practice in the world we got to remember something Hate does not always indicate emotional response or feelings of animosity. Hate does not always indicate emotional response or feelings of animosity. We hear that word and we think that God had an emotionally negative disposition towards Esau. That he didn't like him. He had bad feelings towards him. That's not necessarily the case. Often, the word hate is a reflection of of the feelings experienced by the other in response to something else. In this case, what Esau would have felt like in response to God's action. I remember as a middle schooler, we were coming, I, I've talked about my, my basketball exploits, but in my eighth grade, got to the end of the year, and I had been injured all year, and finally, for the last game, I was cleared to play. Coach didn't start me, which was okay, because I hadn't been on the floor for quite a few games, but he had told me, you're going to play a good amount this game. We go through the full first half, and I hardly touch the floor. But that's okay, because there's a full second half. 
We go through the, the, the third quarter, and, and I hardly play. And coach calls a timeout going into the fourth quarter. He says, all right, guys, we got to make a decision. Do we want to get the eighth graders in, or do we want to go with the hot hand? And I was like, we want to let the eighth graders play, right? I have done my time. I have waited my turn. Put me on the floor. And if we lose with me clanging brick shots against the rim, then so be it. The Lord wills it. Right? Y'all know me. I wasn't quiet. I told him so. I want to play. Put me in, coach. We take a vote. You know where I ended up? End of the bench. You know what I felt at the end of that bench? I felt hated. And in my heart and in my mind, I was like, Coach Boove hates me. He hates me. Oh, he loves Drew. And he loves Ryan. I can remember every player that was on the court. He loves Josh. He loves Dan. He loves the other Josh. But here I am sitting at the end of the bench. Coach Boove, Coach Ron Bouvier hates me. You may recognize that name. Did Boove hate me? I'm here because of Ronald Bouvier. That coach, that's the coach that came and picked me up when I had issues with my family. That's the coach that took me with him to Aldi, my most hated store, and bought me cookies. That's the coach that took me on snow days over to the church so I could do behind-the-back passes. That coach is the reason that I played basketball in high school. That coach is the reason I'm a pastor. I went into the ministry because I wanted to be Ron Bouvier. Did Boove hate me? Of course not. Boove loved me. But in that moment, it felt like Boove hated me because his choice did not align with mine. He didn't give me what I felt like I deserved and was mine by rights because of my effort. Is this not the same thing perhaps that Esau was feeling? Is this not more likely what the text means? Surely God did not hate Esau. The fact is, go back and read the story. At the end of the story, Esau is incredibly blessed. He's a wealthy man, right? He becomes a nation. He doesn't become the nation of promise, but Edom is a, is a nation, God didn't hate Esau, but according to human standards, it would have felt like that to Esau, right? Because God chose someone else to be his messenger and to be his conduit. And here's the issue for us. When God's actions don't fit our understanding or expectations, it feels wrong, doesn't it? When God's actions don't line up with our, under, our reasonable and rational understanding of how people should be treating and how things should work, it feels wrong. And sometimes that results in feeling like maybe, maybe God just has forgotten me. Maybe God doesn't care about me. No, God just doesn't care what you think. It's not that God doesn't care about you. It's not that God doesn't love you. It's not that God hates you. It's that God, God loves you enough not to give you what you think you want. And God understands that it's not about what you deserve, but about the grace that he wants to give. It's true with Esau, and it's true for us. God's grace is given not because we deserve or earn it, but because God in his mercy decided to make it available. And praise God that that's the only way that it's made available, because none of us could earn it or deserve it. God is the active agent in the administration and application of his grace. Each of the people mentioned in the beginning of chapter 9 were chosen without regard to who they were, what they had done, or what they deserved. Two-thirds of them were chosen before they were even born. You see, it was, the promise is a product of grace. 
It was never truly about the child of the promise in the first place, but about the God who made the promise and who would bring it to bear through them. The promise ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus. See, all of those children of promise were not actually the children of the promise. They were the ones that were pointing to the real promise, which was Jesus. That's what's true for us, that God's grace is never truly about us, but it's about God and what he is doing in and through us and in the world. And us being open to being avenues through which his promise can come into the world. Truth is, we are all, by nature, vessels of wrath. But God's desire is to make us vessels of his glory and of his grace. Now here we get in to the language lesson. All right, it's going to be more exciting than you think it is. At least I hope it is, because when I read the text from my boy, my mind was blown. Now, verse 14 through 18, right? It says, what shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire effort, but on God's mercy. We covered that, right? For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. That too hits just a little bit icky right? Because God picks some and lets them choose him. But apparently some of us, there's some of us that God looks and he says, Kurt, sorry, buddy, not you. It's like a a deviation of the old song, you know, that, that, that some of my friends sing when they like to make fun of our Calvinist brothers and sisters, you know. Jesus loves little children, all the children of the world. No, not you, not you, you. Jesus only loves a few. Jesus loves the little children of the world. That's what it seems to be saying, isn't it? This passage is what they use to defend what they call double predestination. And I want to tell you that I believe that double predestination is a tool of the devil and it comes straight from the pit of hell. And that's this, that that if we believe that God predestines some to heaven, that he must therefore then choose others and predestine them to hell. And people use this text to, to, to explain that God makes some people for the sole purpose of those of us who will be saved to feel good about ourselves because we know that they won't. That is horrible. And is that what this text is telling us? Well, my friend David Hannon says this, causivity in language does not actually imply monergistic activity. What that means is this, big words, right, monergistic, it means this, that that it does not mean that God alone is the working agent in what happens. Just because God is the primary working agent doesn't mean nobody else has a part to play in it, right? Right? Obviously, you and I are working in the world, and the Bible clearly gives us responsibilities and actions that we are supposed to act. So God causing something doesn't mean that God is the one that did it. I want to ask you this question, and i got to give credit. My boy David gave me this. How many times have those of you, that, uh, have, have those of you in this room ever said this? You made me mad, so I did this. Anybody? Let me, let me ask the question. Have any of you not said that? You made me mad. Right? I've said it. I've, I say it. I know that I've said it to Robin in the last week. You made me mad, and that's why I did this. Right? So, so say this. Say Robin and I, we, we had a fight. 
And I wrote a version of it. I, I, I was writing my blog, and I decided I was going to use that as my example in my blog. And so I put it in my blog, that this fight. And in the blog, it says, I had a fight with my wife because she made me mad, right? Now, a thousand years from now, a thousand years from now, English has died out. Meaning no one speaks English in the entire world. No one who has ever spoken English is even alive now. But some poor soul is studying ancient 20th century English. And she is doing her dissertation on ancient 20th century English. And she finds, they find the find of the century a blog post by this expert, the Reverend Dr. Jeremy Myers, and it, it is a primary example about how emotional statuses worked in the 20th century. It is mind-altering, paradigm-altering understanding that will help us to better understand how humanity worked in the 20th century. And as she is studying, all she has to go by is ancient grammars and lexicons, dictionaries, thesauruses, and she's looking through this blog post, and as she's looking at it, she finds this statement in there that Dr. Meyer said, my wife made me mad. And her mind is blown because she has come to this earth-shattering understanding that wives in the 20th century had this magical ability to control husbands. <laughs> they could get inside them and control their minds and make them think and do things. And I know some of you are thinking, well, that's kind of true. But it's not. It's ludicrous. <laughs> There's a lot of wives that are like, no, that's not true. I have tried to make him do this, that, he hasn't. That is absolutely, but you get what I'm saying, right? Like he said that, it's true. Dave, the, my, my friend David told me, he, he said, all of this happened because the word made was used in your blog. You made me mad. We know that this is pure foolishness as native English speakers, Right? We know that it's an idiom. It's just, a, it's just a figure of speech that we use. Robin didn't make me do anything. I had an emotional response to something she did, but I made the choice on what I was or was not going to do based upon her action, correct? That is the same thing that is going on here. The, 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 the wording could actually be tra translated better that God incited heaviness in Pharaoh's spirit. Put another way, God made him mad. Go through the, 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 the story of Pharaoh. See how many times it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. Several times. Like, actually, you're like this plague, I think, number six, before it says that God hardened his heart. If we look at that and we think about it consistently, Pharaoh is mad. Pharaoh's heart was already hard. God didn't have to harden it. God was trying to take his workforce. Of course he's going to be mad. Nobody's going to be like, okay, I don't really need him. God didn't have to harden his heart. Pharaoh's heart was already hard. But we use this text to say, see, God makes some people's heart and some people's heart soft. Now, God, does he have that ability? Sure. But God is calling to everyone. And our, our response to that is our responsibility. Listen, God is sovereign. He alone has the right to an ability to rule over the entirety of the created universe. He alone has full understanding of how things function and why they are what they are. 
God does not answer to us. God can do as God pleases, and whatever that is, it is right. Even if we don't like it or understand it. But I think a lot of times we attribute evil to God that is not God's, that is based upon our misunderstanding. Verses 19 through 20, it talks about God creating us and, and the lumps of clay and how some become vessels of dishonor and some become vessels of honor. And God creates us and he alone has the ability to understand why our lives are the way they are. Some of us will end up sitting pretty and some will struggle. But each of us have a part to play in what we store inside the vessel. Paul has covered that, right? That they become vessels of wrath by their choice. It's what is stored in the vessel that determines whether it goes on the shelf in the house or out back with garbage in it. Hear me. This is my point with this. Divine intent, God's purpose and plan, does not remove human agency and responsibility. We are not just puppets on a string that God is making us dance in accordance with his will. We make a choice. We make choices that will determine how we function and whether we live into God's grace or rebel against it. And as we look at verses 22 through 24, it says, What if God, although choosing to show his wrath, he chooses to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of wrath prepared for destruction. What if he did this in order to make his riches of glory known to objects of mercy who he prepared in advance? So notice that in this text that God has to choose to show his wrath. But what is his desire? God's desire is to show his glory, to demonstrate his mercy, to demonstrate his grace. This is consistent with what Paul has said at the beginning And this now explains what Paul has just said. In 2 Peter, it tells us that that God is not slow concerning his promise as we consider slowness. But he's holding off because his desire is that all should come to repentance and salvation. God's grace then is a revelation of the depths of his love. But our rejection of his grace requires the revelation of his wrath. God does choose us, but we have to choose or reject him for that to become active in our lives. We need to remember that salvation is always received and never achieved. Salvation is always received and never achieved. God's grace, according to Scripture, over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, God's grace is available to everyone. At issue, then, is not the withholding of God's grace, but the free and liberal availability of God's grace. You realize that that's what Israel had a problem with? That's what the Jews had an issue with. Their issue wasn't that God is so gracious. That's so great. Their issue is, why is God not keeping them out? This isn't right. This isn't fair. They don't deserve it. And God's like, have you looked at your history? Neither do you. Through Jesus, the potential of the promise is made available to all who would receive him, both Jews and Gentiles, us and them. And understand very clearly, brothers and sisters, unless you can trace your Jewish lineage, we are all of us part of them. 
that they are mad. The, the Israelites were mad because those who were not Israel, you and I, were invited to become citizens of Israel by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And praise God and thank God that he made his grace available to us. Verses 25 through 26, Paul shows the the paradigm shift that has been coming and has been happening throughout history, going back to the Old Testament. Because in Hosea, it shows that mercy would be available to Gentiles and that wrath would come to Israel. What? It's because God's grace only applies to those who accept it by faith in Jesus. Salvation, justification, And restoration only come by faith. Any attempts to achieve righteous standing on our own, whether through personal effort, national or familial identity, or any other human means whatsoever will always ultimately lead to failure. It's interesting. The stumbling stone, according to Romans chapter 9, then, isn't our sin, but the pervasive grace of God. The thing we trip over is not that we mess up. We all freely admit that to to err as human. The issue at, at hand that we struggle with is God's divine forgiveness and the freedom of that. And I find that, that, that not only do we as Christians have a problem extending it to others, sometimes we have a problem receiving it ourselves. Because we think we've gone too far. We think they've done too much wrong. We have a problem accepting and displaying God's mercy because we think it's dirty. Because we're dirty. If we let, if we let that person have God's grace, we're going to dirty God's legacy. You know what? Jesus wasn't concerned about his legacy when he went to the cross. He knew that was going to take care of itself. What did Jesus say about the gospel? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. If the gates of hell itself cannot overcome the grace of God and what God is trying to do, the confession of faith that you are the Messiah, if the the gates of hell can't overcome it, can a couple of sinners do a dent to it? Absolutely not. I just spent a week with kids who over and over and over again talked to me about struggling with finding their worth in Jesus. And they hear messages from us that make them think that they're not good enough. That they're identified and their identity is found in their failure. And that their future is undone by the mistakes that they make now. This is what they carry with them. This is what we carry with us. And it's true, we should be seeking to help people get right, but we got to understand that it's not that you get right and then you get God's grace. You get God's grace whether you get right or not. We need to get over ourselves and we need to open up the doors of this church and the very kingdom of God and let all who would come, come. And they may get our carpet dirty and they may mess up our bathrooms and they may mess up our our, our sanctuary. It might not be the way that we once thought it was going to be, but hopefully it will be what God called us to be. And we will be a vessel of grace, a sweet-smelling aroma in, in his nose as we make a difference because the sovereign God of the universe has made us conduits for his grace and his salvation 
We're not called to protect and keep everyone else. Understand that the weapons of God's word is not meant to beat down the enemies of other people, but to bring them in, to make them our friends and our family, to fight off the powers of evil that would keep them out. God's grace, we sing it, right? Greater than all of our sins. Do we believe that? And if God's grace is greater than all our sin, it's not just my sin, but it's your sin and it's all sins. May we, the people of God, seek to open the kingdom of God as wide as possible. That as Christ has called, we too will call that all who would should come. And that here they would find peace. And here they would find belonging. And here they would find restoration and redemption. That they may be broken out there, but they belong in here. And they can become more. They, like us, can become the children of God. Father God, may you give us the heart of Paul. That as we look at the world, that our hearts would break. Not at the inconvenience of the sin of others, but Lord, at the the lack of your salvation in their lives. And Lord, may we, rather than seeking to just fix people's behavior, Lord, may we seek to bring your salvation into their lives. May we, like Paul, see nothing in our lives that we aren't willing to sacrifice to share your grace. Oh God, give us a heart for your truth. Help us to move according to the guidance and lead of your Holy Spirit. Help us to love as you loved. May we see a great, a great harvest of souls in this church. Lord, I pray that, that, that our water bill would be through the roof as we baptize people upon people because so many people are accepting your grace and coming into your family. Give us heart, hearts of pa- compassion. Give us the, the willingness to act with courage and boldness. And Lord, bring about your plan of salvation and grace here in our community and in our world through our, our lives and actions. In Jesus' name, amen.